0: chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, and tonight we'll consider verses 23 through 25. Romans chapter 4, and verses 23 through 25. Because of the length of Paul's letter to the Romans and the fact that we study it just once a week a potential hazard exists that I want to avoid. And that is the proverbial hazard of not being able to see the forest for the trees. What I mean is that sometimes we get so wrapped up in the details of a passage that we miss or perhaps forget the overall message of the book. In the book of Romans, Paul is making a very systematic, logical well-thought-out argument. Because I want to do it justice, we've spent some time on the details of that argument. And there is a beauty in the details. Without the details, we couldn't have a big picture. But from time to time, I do want to remind you of the big picture of the book of Romans. A careful alternation between focus on detail and big picture I think it helps us to more fully realize the wonder of this letter. And as a result of that wonder and that realization, we should make the changes in our life that God wants us to make. And please, make no mistake, the reason that we study the Word of God is so that we can more fully know God. And knowing God means more than knowing just about Him. It also means living for Him. So tonight I wanted to remind you of the message statement of this letter. And it goes like this. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through His Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude by dedicating our lives to Him. Within that message statement, I want you to carefully consider the final clause. And that is to express our gratitude by dedicating our lives to him. Actually, before we consider our passage tonight, let's do something a bit unusual. I want you to turn ahead. This is not a novel. It's okay if you know how it turns out. I want you to turn ahead to Romans chapter 12 for just a moment. And allow me, if you will, to to give you a quick pass through the book of Romans. Now, this this is uh, on a large scale, but it will show you a little bit about where we've gone and where we're going to go and then why we turn to this particular passage. In Romans 1 1 through 17, we had an extended introduction. That extended introduction was there because the Apostle Paul had never been to Rome and didn't, didn't know his readers directly. He knew some of them because probably some of his converts founded the church But aside from that, he wasn't very familiar with the people, so he had an extended introduction. Then in the section of Scripture that we spent some time in, and that's 118 through 320, we were introduced to the concept of justification, the need for it. And there were three different categories of persons. The immoralist had a need for justification, the moralist had a need, and finally, even the Jew had a need. And... And in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, Paul gets right to the point and says that salvation is by grace through faith. Justification is by faith. It's not by works. In Romans chapter 4, which we've been studying, we have the example of Abraham. And we'll finish that up tonight. Then in Romans chapter 5, we have an interesting play that will take place. In Romans chapter 5, you have... The fact that through one man, sin entered the world, and then we'll see that through one man, uh, salvation enters the world, or the potential for salvation. In Romans chapter 6 through 8, those are chapters that are primarily about the believers' sanctification, experiential sanctification. In, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul will, will cover a very interesting topic that I'm going I'm to call the, the problem of Israel. In light of all the blessings that, that came the, the way of the Jew, why didn't the Jew accept the gospel? And then we get to Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, that's the section that a lot of you have been waiting for. But in Romans 12 through 16, we finally get the application to the entire body of theology that Paul has presented in chapters 1 through 11. Now, there is some, this is not hard and fast, and please excuse my my uh, very sloppy handwriting, but this is not hard and fast. There's certainly some application that we'll see in the first 11 chapters. I hope you've already seen some. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Therefore, or I urge you. Listen to the, the tone, the passion, the emotion that he gives us in these two verses. I urge you, therefore, brethren. The therefore, we need to take a look at, this, uh, at why it is there, what the therefore is there for. The therefore is telling you there's a reason to those first eleven chapters. There's a reason why Paul spent so much time describing this so great salvation that we have. There's a reason for that. Therefore, since I have told you all that, therefore I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you, by the mercies of God, a Hebrew term, a Hebrew expression, we'll we'll get get to that in, in due order, But this is what he's urging us. Based upon the theology that we learn in the first 11 chapters, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a reason for learning theology. There's a reason for spending 11 chapters on, essentially, on soteriology and the ramifications of soteriology. Yes, I know you're already saved. I know you already know that salvation is by grace, through faith, apart from works. So why does Paul spend so much time on it? He gives us a clue in other places. He'll tell you that the overarching, consuming passion of his life is to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Remember what he told the Corinthians, that carnal church? that my passion in life is to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, in Philippians he tells us his passion is to know Christ, but in Corinthians he adds that part about knowing him crucified. We will never, ever be able to appreciate grace until we fully appreciate how lost we were. I don't think you can fully appreciate grace until you appreciate chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. I don't think that we can We're not going to fully appreciate our responsibilities to live life in a certain way until we fully appreciate the doctrines, the truths of soteriology that he brings out in the first 11 chapters. So let's don't get so bogged down in the details that we forget there's a purpose for the way that Paul outlines his argument here. And um, I appreciate details. I do very much, but from time to time I want to go from details to big picture and then back to details so that we never miss the beauty of the passage. Howard Hendricks was asked one time to speak at a, at a particular church. He accepted the invitation, and the elders of the church said, well, no matter what, we don't really care what you preach, Prof. Hendricks, but would you please just not preach anything from the book of Ephesians? And Prof. Hendricks, who has a pretty sharp wit, it can be fairly biting sometimes, was about to tell him that he wasn't going to come. I mean, you don't tell me what to preach. And they said, "Well, no, no, don't don't get us wrong, Prof. Hendricks. It's just that we've been in Ephesians for three years and we're still on the second chapter. We, you know, we'd love to hear anything else from any of the. You know, well, I can sympathize with the, I can sympathize with the pastor who wanted to do a good job in Ephesians and get the details right. But I can also sympathize with the congregation that just got lost. And I would dare dare guess if we were to go to members of the congregation and say, What's Ephesians about? I don't know. You see, that's why we've got to go from details to big picture, back to details, back to big picture, and keep that ever before us. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to pen the words of this letter, not simply that we may be more informed theologians, but so that as a result of knowing more theology, we would act in accordance with the theology that we know and completely turn our lives over to the service of our Creator. So I thought it wouldn't be a bad idea just for a second to look ahead, to remind ourselves that this is going to come to an applicational conclusion. God never asks you to do anything for Him until He's fully informed you of what He has done for you. In Romans, that involves 11 chapters of the most intense and sometimes complex theology that is found anywhere in the scriptures. Now, in the Gospel of John, you can find it almost all in one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. In a way, that's John's one sentence sentence. Summary of what Paul does over 11 chapters. But Paul takes that summary statement and expands it in a beautiful and wonderful way. But whether the message is complex or simple, the response should be the same. Again, Prof. Hendricks put it this way. When finally you have been gripped by all that he has done for you, your most logical, reasonable, and intelligent, natural response in return is to give up everything you've got your mind, your emotions, and your will to his lordship. There's a reason why we learn theology, and the reason why we learn soteriology so that we might be motivated to turn our lives over to him and let the creator have our way with us. God insists. He doesn't just ask. He insists that we totally devote ourselves to him. He's given us the very best that he had. In fact, you might could say he gave us everything that he had in providing for our salvation. So, with that in mind, with the big picture in mind, with the last few minutes that we have tonight, let's look back at chapter 4 now, as we close out this chapter, and remind it again of the price that had to be paid for us to have the opportunity to serve God, for us to have the opportunity to live with him forever. There was a price that had to be paid because we have a problem. We learn that in chapter chapter 1, verse 18 through 3.20. We're going to see it come up again in the next chapter, in chapter 5. Because in chapter 1, verse 18 through 3.20, we see that all have sinned individually and fall short of the glory of God. But in chapter 5, he's going to show us that it was because of one man's sin that we were in trouble in the first place. So now, to close out chapter 4... Paul says in verse 23, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then in verse 25, a rather difficult verse admittedly, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. More on that in just a moment. And remember now that as we close out chapter 4, Paul is using Abraham as an illustration of the principle that he taught in 321-31 through 31, that justification is by faith. He brings up one of the most revered figures in all of Old Testament history, Father Abraham, if not amongst the Jews, the most revered figure. And so having utilized Abraham as this illustration of one who is justified by faith, Paul now turns his attention to us. Or to his original readers in Rome. And this is consistent with the observation that he makes in chapter 15, verse 4, that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and encouragement, or endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Oh, once we get to chapter 15, you're going to be, you will embrace this wonderful word, hope, because of what he's taught us in the first 11 chapters when it all comes down. We'll be able to have hope. And not only because of what Paul's taught in the first 11 chapters, he says, but what has been taught even that is considered scripture all the way back to Moses gives us hope. I can't imagine going through the dying process without hope. I can't imagine watching one of my loved ones going through the dying process without hope. I can't imagine facing the problems of life without hope. There's a reason why we study the theology that is in the book of Romans. But now he's been using Abraham, a figure, they, a figure who lived 2,000 B.C., 4,000 years ago. You talk about a long time ago. This man is ancient history. So why is he relevant to us? Well, this isn't just ancient history. There are links between what happened in the past In our present situation, I pity, and I know there's those of you, many in this room, who had really lousy history teachers, who had history professors that bored you to death. I didn't. I had some of the best history professors that that, that are known to mankind. One of them was Frank Holt at the University of Houston, ancient historian down there in the classics department, brought history to life and showed you how what happened in the past does have a link to what's going on right now. And the mistakes of the past don't need to be. Repeated by each and every generation. Although sometimes it seems like they are. This isn't just ancient history. There are links between Abraham's faith. And the way he was justified in our justification. Now there are differences between Abraham's case. and our case. Yet the basic similarity in God's dealings with both Abraham and us is unmistakable. Both Abraham... And the readers of Romans and us, and we, trust God as the one who acts on our behalf. And both of us, because of that trust, receive justification. There is a link between this man who lived 4,000 years ago and us today. You know, he is a very real person, not a myth, not a story. It's not like some of the figures in Homer's writings that you'll never run into, People won't run into him in hell either. Most of them did not exist. There may have been people behind those myths, but Abraham's a real person. You know what? Someday in heaven, you will see Father Abraham, and you'll know then, just like you know now, the reason you'll see him is because he trusted Yahweh Elohim for his justification, and the reason you're there is because you trust Yahweh Elohim for your justification. Now, maybe you won't do one-tenth the good works that Abraham ever did. I hope you do ten times the good works. But either way, you're both there for the same reason. There is a link between this old dusty man of the past and the way we live our life today. There are differences, but there are similarities. And the similarity is both of us are there by grace through faith. Now, of course, the mention of the resurrected Jesus in verse 24 is an element that could not belong to Old Testament history and the reason I say that is sometimes we misspeak as Christians. And it's, um, it's, we might think it's a small thing, but it's not really so small. Abraham didn't trust Jesus Christ for eternal life. He didn't know the name Jesus Christ. This, the text says Abraham trusted Yahweh to receive eternal life. He trusted the Lord, or he trusted God. Now it turns out, for, from further revelation, from progressive revelation, we know that the, the is, that there is a Trinity, that Yahweh, oftentimes when mentioned in the Old Testament, is the second person of the Trinity. But to say that salvation is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament doesn't mean that they had the same information that we had. Abraham was responsible to believe the information that he had, and the information that he had was that he was a sinner. He needed justification, and he trusted Yahweh to receive forgiveness of his sins and to receive eternal life. So while the resurrected Jesus Christ was not on Abraham's mind as it is in ours because it's part of the extended content of progressive revelation, there is a parallel that is fairly evident between Abraham and the modern reader of the book of Romans, and that is that the same God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead made alive the dead body of Abraham so as to make parenthood possible. That's why that's why this whole thing in the last couple of weeks about Abraham being dead and in, in God and making that body alive. Well it's the same God that made Jesus Christ's body physically alive and resurrected him that brought new life to the sexual function of Abraham. In verse 24 Paul chooses to describe Christians in two parallel clauses each of which brings out their connection with Abraham. First, Christians are those to whom it was going to be reckoned. Abraham, Abraham's faith was reckoned in the past. There will be people whose faith will be reckoned as righteousness in the future. That is, those people who will believe and will be declared righteous. Now second, Christians are those who believe in the one who raised him from the dead. And here's where we have the first difficulty. It's a minor difficulty, but it's the first difficulty in this passage. The Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And so it's somewhat unusual for Paul to designate the Father as the object of our faith. Nevertheless, he does here. In this context, Paul is stressing... The Father as the object of the the faith of the believer to bring our faith into the closest possible relationship to Abraham's faith. Not only is our faith the same as Abraham's faith, but our faith ultimately has the same object that Abraham had. That's why theologians who write soteriology texts state that the object of faith is God, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now in the progress of Revelation, there were things that Abraham didn't know. He might, he might have had a, a, a seed, no pun intended, a, a seed form of that knowledge. But some knowledge was more fully revealed as the Bible and as, as times went on. For example, as, when we get to Second Samuel chapter 7, we'll find that not only is the, is the Messiah going to come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, but it's going to come through... David, well, Abraham didn't know anything about David. Uh, when we get to Micah, we find out that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So there's, there are, there, there's a progress. Uh, when we get to Hosea, we see that he's going to come out of Egypt in Hosea chapter 11, which is another difficult passage. But it's not until the fullness of time that, that, it's, uh, that you have the Messiah that has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So there is information that we have that Abraham didn't have that we're responsible for. And that information is that Jesus of Nazareth died for my sins and rose again on the third day. So that's what I mean by the progress of Revelation. But the the object of our faith is the same, whether it's Abraham or us. We have an expanded content of that faith. And that faith includes the person Jesus of Nazareth. Abraham just simply would have known Jesus of Nazareth as, as the seed of the woman or a seed from one of his loins, as as after Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But in this dispensation, in this era, having that progressive revelation, we're responsible for more than that. We're responsible to believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again on the third day. So don't be confused by that. Most of the time, Paul does shoot, shoot straight to Jesus Christ as the object of our faith. But here he does, he's definitely bringing the Father in as the object of our faith. And there's such a unity within the Godhead that shouldn't trouble us anyway. Verse 25. This is one of the more difficult verses in the book of Romans in terms of its interpretation. And I've left myself about six and a half minutes to do it, so I'm not going to give you all the details of this, but I do want to give you how I believe that this reads He continues with words in verse 25 that have been and continue to be the occasion of much controversy. And the controversy that centers around a little Greek word with three letters, dia, D-I-A, which in this case can be translated a couple of different ways. Some of your Bibles might say for. He was delivered up for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Uh, It can also be translated because of as the New American Standard does. He was delivered up because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. And sometimes it's translated on account of or in accordance with. He was delivered up on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. So the reason I bring that up is you may have many different translations out there. You may have a variety of the ones that I just mentioned. The first phrase, he was delivered up because of, and I think that's fair enough, because of our transgressions, that's not a new concept, is it? No, I mean, Isaiah 53 certainly brings that up in, in full form and does it in a, uh, in a pretty clear way. I do want you to notice here, though, that Jesus Christ was delivered up. The text here doesn't say he delivered himself up. This says that the Father, the same Father who raised, uh, who raised him, is also the one that gave him up that gave him over god the father this is incredible when we think times are when we start feeling sorry for ourselves and we when we start thinking we're making sacrifices for god i want you to think about this consider this carefully god the father gave up he delivered over his precious sinless eternal son so that his enemies according to the book of romans uh, later on so that we who were his enemies could be justified. You think you had a rough day? You think you are sacrificing a lot and I'm sacrificing a lot? We ought not to even use the word sacrifice, really, when we put it in that context. Well, someone said one time, the greatest sacrifice ever made is really the only sacrifice that was ever made. That troubled me for a while, but I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to understand. When you you compare it against the sacrifice the father made and the son agreed to, The things that Jesus Christ insists that we do don't seem so big anymore, do they? It doesn't seem quite so big for me if I have two coats to give my brother one. If I have two dollars and he needs one, I can give him one of them. It doesn't seem so big for me to have to tell someone else about Jesus Christ. No, the difficulty lied in the very original sacrifice. So he, speaking of the God, the Father, who... I'm sorry, Jesus Christ, rather. Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead, in verse 24. He who was delivered up because of our trans- transgressions and that again is the subject in a great way in Isaiah chapter 53 and was raised because of our justification now the problem here obviously is, is does the resurrection have something to do with the fact that we were justified and most evangelical conservative Christians say now wait a minute I thought it was his death that, that occurred so that we might be justified so hence the, the problem with this verse he was delivered up for or on account of our trespasses. And this phrase looks backwards and means that our trespasses made it necessary for him to be delivered up. While he was raised up for on account of our justification, I believe, looks forward. Now, I want to tell you, there are many different views on this. I'm giving you the summary form of these. But I believe the first phrase looks backwards. And they're translated the same way. Uh, dia with an accusative, he was delivered up for on account of our transgressions. That looks backwards as something that happened in in retrospect. Because I was sinful, it made it necessary for the Father to deliver the Son over to evil men to perform this crucifixion. Of course, the book of Acts tells us that while the evil men did it, the Father was still the one that was responsible for Christ being on the cross because he loved us. And the, but the second part, he was raised for, or on account of our justification, looks forward and indicates that he was raised in order to assure us that in the sight of God we have been in, in, indeed been declared righteous. The resurrection, it's too bad we only talk about it at Easter because it's one of the central pillars of the Christian faith. For without, I hope you realize, without the resurrection cross doesn't mean a lot without the resurrection the cross doesn't mean a lot without the resurrection on your deathbed you don't have nearly as much hope as you do now knowing that there was someone who came back from death and it was witnessed by over 500 people it's one of the most attested miracles that's ever been done so you have one that looks backwards and i believe the other one looks forwards again there are people who disagree with that But essentially, no matter how you come to it, this is the conclusion that is come to. It's to give us assurance that in the sight of God we have been indeed declared righteous. In other words, Christ's resurrection had its purpose to bring to light the fact that all who exercise faith have entered into a state of righteousness in the eyes of God. The Father, by raising Jesus from the dead, assures us that the atoning sacrifice has been accepted. Hence, our sins have been forgiven. Before we leave this passage, and I mean verse 25 of chapter 4, we again need to point out the close connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament here. The words delivered up, or delivered over to death in some translations, for our our transgressions, are a strong reminder of Isaiah 53. and That's one of the problems that the Jew has. The Jew either misinterprets or eliminates Isaiah 53 from their thinking. But in verses 4, 5, 6, 8, 11, and 12, in one way or another, the Messiah's substitutionary suffering is described and predicted. So there's a unity of thought between Old Testament and New. Just like there was a unity between the type of faith that Abraham had to to exercise. And the faith that we exercise for that justification, there's a unity of thought about Christ being delivered up, or the Messiah being delivered up, both in Isaiah and in the book of Romans. One note in Isaiah, the, the primary term that the prophet uses there is the servant of the Lord, not Mashiach or Messiah, but it's the same person. One last thing about Romans 4, and then we'll close. Among the precious truths, that is held before us in this fourth chapter of Romans is certainly this one. That, that is that the comforting doctrine of justification, not by works, but by faith, is firmly rooted in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't know if it troubles you or not, but if one of your Jewish friends comes and says, that's, this whole thing about salvation by grace through faith, that's just a New Testament concept. It's not what the Old Testament says. I hope now, after studying the first three chapters, and particularly this fourth chapter, as an illustration of Paul's great truth, the Holy Spirit's great truth that he spoke through Paul in three twenty-one through 31, I hope you'll be able to answer that. Not just to them, but in your own soul. That no, no. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, apart from works. Old Testament and new. Don't ever buy into this business. That some, frankly, some dispensationalists did. I mean, we have to admit mistakes if they were made some dispensationalists actually did say although certainly not the majority in any any way that salvation was by works in the Old Testament it's by grace through faith in the New not true it's by grace through faith both old and new we worship the same God he has the same plan for salvation there is expanded material that we're responsible for and that is the person of Jesus Christ but it's still by grace through faith so with that again in mind I want you to listen one more time With ears that will hear. I mean, by ears that will hear, I mean not just to perceive it, but to learn it. You know, a teacher's not a good teacher unless you learn. You, You can teach your heart out, but if the hearers don't really learn, it really doesn't matter. And for a learner to learn, it means you have to do it. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to him. That's the overarching statement of the book of Romans. So please don't get caught up in the details so that we lose the overarching statement. But at the same time, don't punt the details because you'll never be able to see the beauty of the overarching statement. There's beauty in the details. There's wonder in the details, just as there's wonder in the overarching statement of the book of Romans. Next week we'll begin, actually two weeks from now. Two weeks, uh, assuming the things that we talked about a minute ago, we'll begin chapter five. Dr. Johnson, would you close us tonight? Thanks.